hurry in to Mattress Firm's July 4th sale. Get a king bed for the price of a queen or a queen for a twin and save up to $500 on Sealy. Plus, get a free adjustable base with qualifying Sealy purchase, up to a $4.99 value. Or shop Tempur-Pedic, the most highly recommended bed in America, and save $500 on all Tempur-Breeze mattresses and get a $300 instant gift good towards sleep accessories. Only at Mattress Firm. Restrictions apply. See store or mattressfirm.com for details. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. The guest has arrived. The host is prepped and ready. Ladies and gentlemen, this is One on One with Bill Alexander. Hi, everyone. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill, and you're on one-on-one with Bill Alexander. Glad you can join me today for a very fun program. At least it should be fun because the gentleman I'm talking with has half of it, uh, I guess, started already because he has the right wardrobe on to get this program going today, which he is wearing his Pittsburgh Steeler jersey, and uh, his terrible towel is behind him. <laughs> As we talk to Mark Scheffler, actually, he is a former Pittsburgher, but I guess I can say once a Pittsburgher, always a Pittsburgher, correct? That is correct. I, I was about to, I was, as you said that, I said, no, I'm just a Pittsburgher who lives in Los Angeles now. There you go. So we, you and I had a few minutes to talk before um, we started this today. And the one thing I noticed is you lost that Pittsburghese, that accent. Well. You, you can thank the Pittsburgh Playhouse for that. Um, and, and, and a speech teacher I had uh, there, uh, who I think her, her last name was Sheldon, Miss Sheldon. Uh, she taught uh, uh, principles that were uh, created by another speech teacher who I believe was at Carnegie uh, Mellon for a while, Edith Warman Skinner. And we had a book called Speak with Distinction. And uh-huh. we, we used to... Uh, ha- have classes outside on uh, uh, I think it was Craig Street and Forbes where the uh, old playhouse was mm-hmm. and we half the class would be on one side and the other half the class would be on the other and the Forbes Avenue traffic was going by and we had to talk to each other without shouting and ah. we, we and then and then at the same time uh, uh, practice the principles of a very neutral dialect so that when you're acting you can then adopt other dialects, but you don't have one to, to over, you know, to overcome. You, you know, I, I speak kind of, even though I lived in the South for a while and I lived in New York, in, uh, in New York I have a very neutral uh, yes. accent. So before we get underway, Mark, explain to my audience who you are. Oh, I'm a guy from Pittsburgh who, uh, um, when he was 14, living with a single father, an aluminum siding salesman, uh, uh, a legendary aluminum siding salesman. Uh, uh, One day we're in the Stanley Theater downtown uh, watching uh, Jerry Lewis in uh, The Nutty Professor. 
And at the end of the movie, I, according to what my father, you know, had told me, I, I stood up and I said something like, uh, wow, Jerry Lewis is the funniest guy in the world. And what, what that life must be like being in the movies. And my dad just looked at me and said, uh, well, maybe you'll find out someday. And I said, yeah, well, that's not really possible, I don't think. And my dad got mad at me in a, in a, in a funny way. And he said, uh, what do you mean it's not possible? People do it every day. Why not you? And I had no answer for him. So uh, we made that little deal that, that if, uh, I'll star in a movie that will be at the Stanley and he'll come with me in a limo to the premiere. Okay. So um, cut to seven years later, uh, Wes Craven's first film, Last House on the Left, opens up in Pittsburgh. I was one of the four stars of the movie. They, uh, uh, the production company sent me to Pittsburgh to do some press. And lo and behold, it opens up at the Stanley. So I'm the guy who had that unbelievable circumstance happen to him. I'm the guy who, when he was 10 years old, that same aluminum siding salesman father with like this unbelievably out of the box thinking pattern said to him, what do you want for your 10th birthday? And I said, the three stooges, and he got them for me. And, and they, were do, they were doing a gig at the Holiday House. And uh, on a Saturday afternoon around my birthday, my dad hired them to perform for uh, a bunch of my friends and their families and their parents and everything. And while in the middle of the show, uh, uh, Mo stops the show and says, we're here to celebrate Mark's birthday. Where's Mark? So, you know, I raised my hand. He said, Mark, stand up. So I stood up and he said, in fact, come up on stage with us. So I went up on stage and there I was on the stage of the Holiday House uh, uh, with the Three Stooges. I couldn't see the audience because of the lights, but right. I could hear them and I could feel them. And I started interacting with the Stooges and doing their shit because I was a huge Paul Shannon guy. You know, I, I was, was just going to ask that. Yeah, I was, I was a Paul Shannon kid. You know, I'd come home from school and change into my Stooge clothes, you know, and sit and watch TV for two hours and like so, so I started interacting, like I said, and I knew all their material. So I knew, I knew their bits. I knew their timing. I knew, I knew what yeah. they were doing. And in, in about, you know, a minute later, a minute or two later, Mo stops everything again. And he puts his hand on my head and he says, I dub you the fourth stooge. And <laughs> the audience applauded and they laughed and they cheered. And all of a sudden I felt this, this tidal wave of comfort, this warm, ooh, there I was on stage with a microphone and saying things and doing things and people were laughing and this is what I get back for it. And I, I felt like the most embraced, you know, like, like uh, I didn't shiver like that when I lost my virginity. I didn't, I, this is, you know, this was a more life. Right. Change moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting is you mentioned Paul Shannon and the three stooges, who had a very close connection to Paul Shannon and the Holiday House, but you had the Stooges there. It would have been Mo, Larry, and Curly Joe, right? Curly Joe, there's a picture behind me. Uh, that picture I'm pointing to. I see that. It. Yeah, that's a picture of uh, Mo, Larry, and Curly Joe Dorita and me at my birthday party. Oh boy. So it's kind of neat to be able to hear that because when you talk to people that grew up in this area, if they're not of your age or of my age, I'm in my mid 50s. They don't know any of this stuff. Yeah. And you try to and you try to tell them about it and they go, no, no, no. Pittsburgh, 
Pittsburgh wasn't um, wasn't big for for nightclub acts and stuff like that. Oh, yes, it was. And they don't realize what the Holiday House was or all these venues that we had in town. My dad, my dad got out of World War II. He he came back to Pittsburgh, and and his uncle, my uncle Sonny Sonny Miller, owned a cafe a bar in, in downtown Pittsburgh called Miller's Cafe. Okay. And my dad was got as soon as he came back from the service, my uncle gave him the job of general manager, and then. They expanded out uh, to a, a nightclub that was on Sawmill Run Boulevard called the Boogie Woogie Nut Club, right? And okay. if, just by the title of it, you can imagine it's a very kind of late 40s, early 50s uh, vibe nightclub, right? So, uh, or mid 40s to, to that time period. And they, my dad, as the manager of that place, and uh, uh, he was pals with Joey Bishop and Rummy Bishop. And every comedian and singer, they would they would bring big name talent. A lot these what you're talking about. These kids don't know Pittsburgh has no. has a huge entertainment history. Right. I mean, August Wilson's from the Hill District. Yeah. You know. I mean, uh, you know, D- Billy Eckstein. Uh, they're they're tremendous artists who who have come out of Pittsburgh. And that's kind of amazing to hear. But now let's move to 1972, the last house on the left. Ah. Uh, I know no one knew who Wes Craven was at that time. He was a tall, skinny, hippie-looking guy named Wes. So how did he find you, or did you find him for this part? I, I was doing comedy. I, I had just come, had moved to New York City uh, from the Catskills, where, where I was working. I worked uh, uh, at the Raleigh as the stage manager. So quickly, the timeline was I stayed there for about a year, met comedian London Lee. I don't know if you remember the name. Name is familiar. Yes. Yeah. London Lee was a, a, a comedian on the on the East Coast, mostly, who was pretty well known. He had done Sullivan and he, a few times in Carson and he was in that circuit. And his whole shtick was that he came from a very wealthy family in New York. His father was in the garment business and he was a poor little rich kid. You know, he had jokes like when I was a kid, my father gave me a German shepherd, not a dog a real German shepherd, you know, <laughs> just, you could just comedically extrapolate out from that. And, you right. could, and he was very good and people loved him and he had excellent comedy writers. So I was doing, I, I started out at his, as, as his uh, uh, driver and then, you know, schlepper run errands for him and his wife. And uh, uh, then uh, uh, I wrote a couple of jokes for him that really worked. And then I became part of his act and stayed with him for uh, a little under a year, ending up at uh, two weeks at the Copa. I did stand up at the Copa. Oh, Havana, wow. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, so I had, a, I, right after that, I, I lucked into meeting a management firm that, that wanted to represent me. And it happened to be the same managers that Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck had at the time, uh, Lloyd Greenfield and Associates. And the manager uh, who handled me, his name was Dick Towers. One day I walked into his office they were in, which was in Rockefeller Center. And he said, uh, hey, I have a movie audition for you. Uh, go down to this address. Ask for two guys, Wes and Sean. Tell them I sent you. And, uh, you know, do your best. So I go down and I meet a tall, skinny, blonde, hippie-looking guy named Wes and a short, stubby guy with a mustache named Sean, both about, you know, 30 years old, 28, 29 in that area. And they tell me about the movie. They asked me to read a scene. And I read it 
I did it. And I got back to Dick's office uh, about a half hour later, and they had already called to say, that's the guy we want. And, and let, let me just say that one of your stills from that movie is not one of the most flattering pictures out there, but it's, it comes up everywhere. When we look for you online, oh, when I'm blowing my head off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Figured. Yeah. My dad, so, my dad couldn't watch that scene. He, he, he could watch the whole movie, but not that scene. So, um, so how was it, what was it like working with, with Wes Craven? And, and did you have a friendship with him after he made it big? Uh, uh, yes, great. And yes. And, I, uh, first of all, you have to understand that as with any, anybody I've worked with or know for whether it's Wes or Robin Williams or Letterman or any of these guys back then, they weren't those who they became. Right. They were, they were just, so Wes was a tall, skinny, hippie looking guy with blonde, stringy blonde hair named Wes. It, it, it he didn't become Wes Craven until later. He was an, an innate storyteller visually. He knew exactly what he wanted, you know, what he didn't know uh, uh, technically or experientially on, uh, on Last House, he was able to get by instinctively. Uh, uh, so it, it, the whole experience was amazing. I learned the fundamentals of everything I know about production during that four weeks in Connecticut. and. Even though we didn't have a ton of money to spend, hardly anything, you still, the basic, you know, uh, rudiments of filmmaking remain the same. So on my, what I'm looking at, it said you made $400 on that film? 400 bucks. I got a hundred bucks a week. Uh, in fact, I wrote a joke about it. I said, you know, when I got my first paycheck from, uh, from Last House, uh, I went into the city, to New York to cash it, and it Teller looked at it and laughed and asked me, how would I like this? Heads or tails? <laughs> so earlier you, you were talking about the Playhouse. Are you a graduate of Point Park? I'm not a graduate, but I attended there. I, 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 I went and I had fun and I did stuff. And, and then I just kind of longed to go to for real. I, I didn't like the, I wasn't a school person in my life. I, I really, I, I sometimes wish I was more, but no. So what did you study when you were there? At Point Park? Oh, I was yeah. at the, I was I was part of the Playhouse. I, I Oh, okay. Was, yeah, I was in fact I'm an original member of the Pittsburgh Ballet Company. I I I was in that company its first season with Nicholas Petrov. Nicholas and Mary Petrov. Wow. Yeah, I, I played mean... the, I played the dancing bear in the nutshell. <laughs> I I played I had two parts. An opening curtain, I was I was the, the house servant um on the ladder, lighting the Christmas tree. Yeah. And, then I, and the guy who took Drusselmeyer's coat from, uh, uh, from Drusselmeyer, of course, uh, and gave it to, you know, and handed the present to Clara. And then I have to jump out of that costume and go around the back of the old playhouse, back to psych and, and into my other costume, which was the dancing bear. bear. So, so the, the, the humorous thing about that and all the performances that we did, the hat or the headpiece of the bear costume, uh, my, I couldn't wear my glasses underneath it. So I couldn't see shit. So I could hear the music. And the girl who was playing Clara, this little eight-year-old girl, I told her beforehand, you know, like, it, like during the first dress rehearsal, that yeah. I can't see. You have to lead me. I have to, I, I, you know, I know what space I'm in, but I really can't see that well. 
So we did, I don't know, 15, 20 performances. I couldn't see shit in the second half. Wow. Well, unfortunately, the Playhouse, the original, they uh, tore I down. Heard. Yeah. And they rebuild a new one. But I, I really like the old one because I, oh. I was there many a time. So yeah, broke my heart. Uh, when I heard that. Kind of interesting. You also mentioned your sister still lives back in Pittsburgh. I have a sister who lives there. Where does yes. she live? Uh, Upper St. Clair. Oh, OK. So you still have a connection to the Berg and everything else, oh, which is kind I'll of always have a connection. It's just, you know, right. when, you know, when you're from Pittsburgh, it's not like being from most places you know pittsburgh there's a there's a whole history with it so yeah so when i go through your list of credits you worked on episodes of sister sister harry and the henderson who's the boss charles in charge i mean the happy days reunion show even how bugs bunny won the west that was my first big network show yeah why hasn't there been a good sitcom dealing with pittsburgh well it's funny you mentioned that um, I am, as we speak, in the process of uh, trying to find a, a name actor, to, uh, a male to to for to play the lead in a show uh, uh, that I call, that I call Those Seven Years, and it's uh, uh, I've written the pilot, and those seven years are are the, the seven years from when I made that promise and deal with my father until. He rides to the Stanley with me in the limousine and everything that that uh, happened in between and pretty much the entire show, except for the last part of the last season, takes place in Pittsburgh. So in, in it starts in 1963 and it goes through to 1971 to Last House is Open. Have you contacted Michael Keaton? I know I, I knew Michael back in the day. Michael's actually uh, is an extraordinary actor, but is too old. I need someone who's in their uh, 40s. I need somebody mm. to, to play my father. And I need, oh, okay. need, need somebody in the 40s. We're, we're, we're out to uh, a fairly humongously named actor. We, we have a list. I'm partners with a, a guy named Gary Hart, my producing partner. Gary was the president of Paramount uh, uh, Network Television for uh, about 13 years. And we go back to my Charles in Charge days when he was uh, executive at Universal. So we're out. We're, we're at CAA right now with, with uh, a couple of big name actors. And fingers crossed. Well, I hope I hope it actually happens because that'd be kind of fun. Now, would you shoot everything here or would I you would... do it on a... Well, the way you would do this is you would come you look at all the scripts and you say, what exteriors do I need? Okay. And come back and you shoot all the exteriors. But you'd, I would be dressing everything back to 1963. So, you know, 64. So that's always fun. And I don't know. I, I mean, I, I say here, but the, a lot of those decisions are not mine. Uh, even though I'm the executive producer, those are financial decisions. Right. Probably wherever the best, deal is is where we would make it well they just got done wrapping up i guess it's a netflix series called a league of their own which is they remade that and they shot oh, yeah, that yeah. in the pittsburgh area oh great so this yeah, area has been i'm open i'd love to because uh you know i would love to come back and and uh, shoot and shoot a series trust me if you need a, an, an, uh, an extra that's 55 or above i'm available uh if i come back <laughs> make you a promise okay yeah. If I come back, if this thing actually happens, right, uh, uh, um, and I come back there to make the show and, and you know about it, 
send me an email and I will put you in there somewhere. I, I will do that. I will hold you. I to promise that. you. I promise you. Because it's not, you know, it's not really a big deal to do that. I don't want you, I, from my end, it wouldn't be like nothing. It would be say, hey, this guy's a friend of mine. Just give him something to do in the diner. That's it. That's all I hey, would that have works to for me. I mean, yeah. hey. Um, so I go through your list of credits and some of the people you've met. And you mentioned earlier Robin Williams. Yes. When did you meet Robin? Well, Robin and I arrived. I got to L.A. in uh, February of 76 and then started working at the comedy store uh, I believe late March, April of 76. Uh, so I met Robin and got there like may, I think a couple of weeks before me, but only a couple of weeks because when I met him, uh, he was just Robin from San Francisco. Right. You know, uh, I was Mark from Pittsburgh. Michael Keaton was the other guy from Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. You know, yeah. So, you know, that's, that's, have you, have you seen any of the trailers for the new Robin Williams film? No, because I guess there's there's the guy that's playing Robin right. is must, oh, must that, be. Is, I don't know if that's a film or an actual film or it's something that somebody's trying to launch as a film. I think they're trying to launch it because they yeah. they have um, the character playing Pam Dauber in that. But the guy that's playing Robin, when he hears about Jim Belushi passing away or John Belushi passing away, he is I mean, he is Robin, in my opinion. And I was just curious if you had the opportunity to see that. I, I, I haven't seen that moment, but I've seen a few other moments that, you know, I, I don't know. It's it's I have a kind of odd. I don't know if it's odd reaction to it. I don't know if enough time has passed. I mean, you know, his kids are on social media and his ex-wife is on social media. His wife was on, you know, Robin was a really nice, purest performer I've ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. Like, just this guy was, you know, like he was the, like Tiger Woods of performing, just the natural, the most natural thing ever for him. Uh, and he was a really nice fella. You know, he was a really, he's a really good guy. Because uh, and, and with you just saying what you said, I was going to ask you that if you feel there's enough time passed. Now, a lot of people, um, younger kids who, who know him mainly from the voice from Aladdin and some of the stuff he did after that, don't realize that he did stand up or did happy days or Mork and Mindy or that stuff. And do you think that that's why they're trying to introduce, trying to do this now, or are they just trying to capitalize on the name? Yeah. Nobody's trying to introduce him to anyone. They're just trying to capitalize. Okay. That's, there's no doubt in my mind about that. No, no one's that altruistic. Like, let me enlighten an entire generation. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's my mission in life is to open for Robin Williams. No, 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 no. It's for money. <laughs> well, I, I, I thought I would be nice about it because no, I know they're doing that, the film that, now. That's another thing that offends me, right? It's a, that's, a, that's a whole other. If his family was behind it, right? If his kids were behind it, and his, was, then that's a whole other thing because then they have input and they, you know, they become part of it. But to do something kind of ex parte from them uh, uh, just to, you know, capitalize on who Robin was. That's just fucked. <laughs> now, a question for you is, is because right now, after all these years, Lucy Arnaz is doing the piece about her mother and father meeting the Ricardos. Correct. But that's what I said. Lucy Arnaz is involved in it. So you've, I mean, again, 
because Lucy's involved with it, could have it happened 10 years after Lucy died and there wouldn't have been an issue. I, I think, like I said earlier, as, as long as some, as, as long as somebody who was like, you know, obviously a, a good connected member of the family, like Lucy uh, or, or anyone is involved, then it, it kind of like sanctions, it, it gives it street cred. It, it, it takes it away from the pandering nonsense of it. So of all the programs you've worked on, are there any that stand out? Well, some of them stand out for different reasons. You know, uh, uh, that's, that's like How Bugs Bunny Won the West. That stands out to me because it was the first network show mm-hmm. that, I, that I ever wrote. Uh, uh, Sanford uh, uh, stands out to me because it was the first network sitcom that I wrote. Um, and I, I didn't realize you wrote that. And I thought right. that when I, w- I was reading stuff today and I'm going, I remember that. I mean, okay. I do. Uh, I really do. You know, different, you know, like co-ed fever, which, which was a, a nonsense ripoff of animal house is uh, uh, special to me. And because I made some good friends there and, and some people I, I care a great deal about still. Uh, so, you know, everything you take from, from everything for the most part, something good besides the money, you know, okay. uh, it's, it, it could be a relationship. It could be a shitty show that you, you write a great script for. Uh, I mean, you know, this whole, this whole entertainment industry career thing, it's, it's an ongoing journey. And I, I try to, uh, I really do. I, I try to take something positive from every work experience. So when you did the happy days reunion show now, being a a guy observer from the outside watching this you write this program and basically what you're doing is is they're dropping in sequences of the of the show or the previous show well we okay continue and then i'll tell you what we actually did (laughs) okay so that's what i'm going to ask you so did you put the words in uh marion ross's mouth um uh like why can't I think his name? Anton Williams, uh, Donnie Most, Donnie Most, Ronnie Howard. Yeah, no, we didn't put the words in their mouths. What what Sam and I did, Sam Denoff, my my writing producing partner. What Sam and I did was uh, we screened every episode, all two hundred and twenty six episodes wow. of uh, uh, the show. We taught we we had personal conversations. Because a lot of the people we knew already, right? So you know, like like uh, Sam and Ron Howard were old friends, and I knew Ron casually because I knew Ron and and uh, Brian Grazer, uh, his his producing partner. Um, we, you know, uh, somebody. Did, so everybody knew some. We, so we weren't. And Sam and Gary Marshall were peers. Were were right. You know, started together. Worked on Dick Van Dyke together. So um, it wasn't. It was it was more like we just had conversations, you know, like ABC wanted to do the show. We we didn't tell the uh, the actors what to say, but we did construct. We we pulled the episodes to watch. You know, we pulled the clips. We constructed the the overall narrative of the show. And then they the actors uh, uh, in their interviews uh, uh, filled in 
the, the spaces in between those uh, things that we had uh, kind of a skeleton structure that we put together. Because I was always curious about that. And, and also when you went through all the episodes to put the reunion show together, um, did you feel that, I mean, we, cause some of us did because the, the, uh, the, the term jumping the shark yes. came from happy days. Did you feel that there was, there was a natural time for the program to end, but they just kept pushing it further? No, well, no. And I'll tell you why, because when you look at, when you look at all 226 episodes of something, you then kind of get a real time understanding of what the show was about. Right. So in sitcoms, for the most part, uh, um, the show is about one or two people. Right. So the, the, this uh, uh, happy day started. I mean, at this I know because I talked to Gary and I talked to Ronnie and Henry. Um, uh, happy day started out. Uh, it was uh, uh, Ronnie's character, Richie Cunningham, who was the star of the show. And that was in the first season when it was a single camera because it, it changed uh, uh, the way they, they changed the way they made the show in the second season. So uh, it was a single camera show. And Henry Winkler's character was kind of like this brooding outsider, right? Okay. And who, who in the pilot didn't even have a line. He had a gesture and a, hey, that's all he had. And he wasn't wearing a leather jacket. He was wearing a cloth jacket. Right. Right. So, so um, what happened was they do the show and the audience reacts a certain way. And that way was to throw the, the love to uh, uh, Henry Winkler and the Fonz. And not, not anything disrespectful to Richie, I mean, to Ronnie, but the lion's share of the, of the male was going to the Fonz. So one, Henry and Ronnie had a conversation about that. And they, they just said, look, you know, it ain't up to us. It's whatever way the the audience goes and they who are they're both wonderful wonderful people henry and ronnie are the, like two of the nicest guys you'll ever meet and they just said look wherever it goes it goes we're just gonna have fun have fun with it so when i when i get back to what i said about understanding what the show is about if you look at the show in its totality you understand that the show you look at where henry winkler's character was at the beginning of the show and as it moved through the the first couple of three, four, five seasons, right? Until one day he, the character took a turn and by the end of the show, he was an upstanding member of society. So right. if you look at the character arc of the show, it was, it was the, 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 the change of life that one, that, that, the, that the body of the show, the events and the stories and the drama and the, and the emotion of the show had on, on, on Henry's character, on the Fonz, that made him go from being this bicycle, leather jacket, tough guy to the complete opposite. That's what the show is about. Um, so going back, when you talk to Gary, because I guess the program, if I remember correctly, because I was very young at the time, was actually originally seen, or at least the, the idea was seen on Love American Style, correct? Yes. Well, it was from a vignette that they did on Love American Style. And um, from a vignette. What made him think that from the vignette they could take it and make a whole series out of it? Yeah, I didn't know Gary Marshall to answer that question. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, let me see. I got an idea. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this happen. I see it big. I see I'm gonna have guys there, but I'm not gonna put it in New York. I'm gonna, gonna put it there somewhere. Milwaukee. We'll put it in Milwaukee. You know. So, so he was a, uh, he, the guy had a mind. You know, he had, he was, uh, and it was, you know, terrific. But, but that's, you know, just that's what people do. They, they. Yeah. they they ask themselves, you know, what if, like, what if that, those are the two words that unlock the, the imagination. If you just ask yourself, what if? That's what's amazing about people like you who can come up with an idea and flesh it out into a, a script, a series, whatever it is, because I can come up with something and I can maybe probably go two paragraphs and I'm lucky. But yes. yet you can take it and flesh it out to something that people want to see. There's a downside to that. Okay. Are you, are you a married man by any chance? Yes, I am. Okay. Does your wife ever look at you and say, who are the people inside your head you're talking to now? <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. My wife does that all the time. Like, <laughs> I, she said, are you here? Are you talking to anybody? Is there anybody in your head now? Because uh, need, we need to have, talk about the gardener. And I said, can, can you tell the people in your head to shut up so that we can... Uh-huh. Yeah, there's a downside to it. I, I, I guess, you know, we live in a bubble, the, the people you're talking about, and we're, we're able to do that. It's a lot of fun. It's like confounding sometimes because you literally are hearing a bunch of different voices in your head. So, so I, other than the one you're, you're working on right now, the seven years, do you seven. have ideas pop or the first seven? Do you have no, ideas? Seven years. Okay. I'll get it right eventually. Don't worry. So do you have ideas popping in and out of your head all the time? I do. And I write them down. I have notebooks all over my office. You know, I do. But I'm concentrating on, on this show because it's a story I really want to tell. Okay. Because I'm, my- <laughs> I'm looking through I'm looking through the list of things that you did, like you did uh, Charles in Charge. Yes. What was unique about working with Scott Bayo and his character? Well... The whole show was a was a very well run production. The executive producer was a fellow named Al Burton, who came out of Norman Lear's camp, and uh, the uh, executive producers who were the showrunners were uh, a husband and wife team named Bill and and Kathy Greer, who were like the the, the no drama king and queen of uh, executive producers back then. Like they ran a show that was as smooth as could be, and Al Burton. Uh, I had a rule and that was uh, don't pitch him any episode idea that didn't begin with the word Charles. So everything was very simplified. Now, as far as Scott is concerned, uh, um, he was nothing but professional. Mm -hmm. He was nothing but nice to everyone. He was, he, he was uh, a, a natural for, for that medium. He knew Every like he grew up in the business, so he knew everything. He and and he was uh, uh, a, a really easy guy to work with, you know, just 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 really easy to work with. You know, he'd pop into the writer's room occasionally, but never a problem, never anything. Because I a, a while ago I spoke to one of the uh, she was a did a guest appearance, her name is Diane Franklin. She played the princess whenever there was a love relationship going on she was on there and she was in the movie better off dead 
and we were talking and she said the same thing about him, that he was nothing but professional. It was a great set to work on and everything else. And I was just kind of curious if it was one person or did everybody feel that way? No, it was, it was, um, you know, it was a great job. I mean, it was because you, you look forward to coming to work, right? Mm-hmm. There was no, like I said, there was no drama. Uh, I was partners with Lee Aronson at the time. Lee went, went on to uh, uh, co-create two, two and a half men with uh, Chuck Lorre. And that's actually where Lee met and Chuck Lorre met. Chuck had an episode of. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, no, we don't. I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah. So what, when you look at when you look at this stuff right now, we are seeing all this nostalgia coming back where they're taking the main characters from a program 20, 30 years ago and then putting them back on screen again as older characters of themselves. Could you see them doing something like that with a Charles in charge? Cause I heard rumors that they're doing it with who's the boss. Yeah. I heard that. Same, I heard that same thing that, that uh, Norman Lear is doing it with Tony. I heard that. And, and do you think, I mean, do you think we're doing it because we want to go back to our childhood or there's just no other good stories out there? Well, for, you know, that, that we, the, 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 the pronoun we, the ubiquitous we, it's decisions that are made by uh, uh, executives in, in networks and streaming services and production companies. So what, what decisions are made that, you know, like Tony Danza, Tony Danza, if, you're, if, you, if you own a network or a streaming service and Tony Danza comes to you and says, I want to, hey, I want to do Who's the Boss again. You know, I want to do it. I want to do it. Yeah, I'm going to come back and do it. He was, I'm, I'm a the older guy, the older guy. Uh, but if, 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 listen, for the amount of money that would have caught, that would cost to actually produce those shows, if you can make a deal with Tony, it's absolutely worth doing. Really? Yes, it's, it's, it's a no brainer. You know, it's, it's a no brainer to do that. Because I know that uh, they're doing another uh, live program this coming week on ABC dealing with different strokes and the facts of life. Nice. And I'm having an issue with it because why are they having adults play children's roles, which I still don't understand that one. Well, you have to watch. Maybe that's the way the script is written. Maybe it's, it's, uh, you know, growing up. I don't know, but I, I just, I just find it interesting. Kevin Hart being Arnold Drummond. I can see that, that that's the one I can see for sure. But again, it's just, it's just interesting to see that. Now, when you mentioned the streaming services, do you see the streaming services playing a bigger part in programming that is going to be in the future, like what you're working on right now? I, I think that's the direction it's going because, uh, you know, when we were kids, television watching was very regimented, right? right. You know, you, you, you came home from school, you maybe watched a little Paul Shannon, you did your homework, you had your dinner. And that space in between was when you were watching Bonanza and the show and actually whatever you were watching. But we don't live in that regimented world anymore. We're, all, we're on the go, whether we're sitting at home or not, we're, we're kind of like intellectually on the go, right? We're, so no one, it, it isn't appointment TV anymore. People record things with DVRs and they watch on, on streaming. And what. So I think, yes, the answer to that is yes, and there'll be more of them. You know, there'll there'll be a lot more as uh, as they acquire access to content because that's what it's about. It's about content. Would you be open to, for a streaming service to take your program, or were you trying to get network? 
No, I'm trying. Listen, the, the way I wrote it and the language I use, there's no network that would put it on the way okay. I wrote it. And I, and I, I wouldn't put it. I wouldn't sanitize it just to be on a network. Because I was going to ask you that question next. Would you clean it up to be able oh, to do it on it? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Because that's not how it was. If okay. It was, so, it was like, you know, like nothing I say in, in any scene didn't really happen. That's the beauty okay. of it. And that's what I think is really interesting that you're going to be able to write or you have written about yourself in a way that you're going to be able to retell the story. Now, how much of it is based in fact and how much of it has been spiced up to keep an audience going? Well, look, the way I've structured, let, let's let's say hypothetically, I could get someone to say, yeah, I, I want to do this. I have it now structured out where it's. It's about 10 episodes a season for seven seasons because it's those seven years. Those I seven years. Right. So I have the beginning. I, ha I wrote the pilot. Everything in the pilot is actually happened. It's 100% true the way it happened. Okay. Okay. And I had, I've been a really lucky guy. Uh, um, I, 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 I have had some unbelievably extraordinary luck. And part of the, uh, underlying narrative of the show is that the, the protagonist, the, uh, the kid, is his luck, is his, is his balls that he got from his father and his luck. And he puts the two of those together and, and makes what happens at the end of the series happen. It's just, it's luck and balls. So, you know. Is there any series out there that you did not work on that you wish you would have? Yeah, I would have liked to have worked on Seinfeld. Uh, um, I think, I think that would have been, a, you know, a lot of fun and a great credit, you know, uh, all in the family. I wish I, I was older kind of right. and had done that because that was, and then I, I, again, lucky, right. Um, when I was a kid, I was a huge fan of the Dick Van Dyke show, mm -hmm. uh, which I thought, you know, just because for a variety of reasons, not the least of which that it introduced me to the concept that a person can be a comedy writer and earn a great living. Right. You know? So I, I started thinking about myself beyond being a comedian, like, you know, thinking of myself as, as a writer. So I noticed that, that a lot of the episodes that I really liked were written by a team, uh, Sam Benoff and Bill Persky, Bill Persky and okay. Sam Benoff. Right. Uh, well, turns out years later, um, uh, I become writing, producing partners with Sam Denoff. So weird shit has happened to me in my career. Well, I mean, good weird shit, right? Right. So, you know, um, I just believe that as, as long as, as uh, I'm around, right, and I can write, that I'll get this done. If I can get, an, if I can get some name actor to want to take the ride with me. So... Uh, I was looking on your list and I guess there's one they actually marked that didn't do very well. And that was the little shop of horrors pilot. Yeah. I got, that was a deal. It was weird. I, I got a call from my agent one day and said, uh, you know, what little shop of horrors is, right? I yeah. said, yes. He said, uh, how'd you like to write the pilot? I said, they're making a pilot. He said, well, we don't know if they're making a pilot, but somebody wants a, a script written. And I said, well, why don't they just get the guy who wrote this, the play and the movie? Right. They said, they want a sitcom writer. I said, okay. So I took a crack at it. I, I have no idea. I, you know, I turned it in, got paid. Uh, 
did the best I could at the time. I don't fucking know these things. Way, those are decisions way above, you know, a lowly writer's pay grade. I can't imagine taking that and turning it into a series because I think the novelty would wear off so quick. Probably, you know, maybe somebody just look a lot of times back in those days. I don't know how it is now because I've been in, involved as much back in those days. Some studio or network executive would, you know, get a feather up his or her ass and, you know, say, I'd like to see a script on this. And they just hire a writer and order a script. That could wow. be what happened. So you also did the best of the Hollywood Palace, which. Sure had to be really interesting to do that because of all the acts that were on the Hollywood palace when it was in its heyday. Yeah. That's one, again, one of those things where Sam and I just screened, you know, hours and hours and hours of shows and uh, uh, got Suzanne Summers to, to mm-hmm. host it. And we went into a little studio in Burbank and shot the ins and outs and put it together in post. And that was that. Yeah, but it was fun. It was interesting to watch all those, you know, I, I, I don't remember who we used, but I know it was it was a fun gig to do because we got a chance to see a lot of uh, kind of obscure and, and interesting talent. Um, when and again, other than the three stooges, when you met when you were 10 years old, was there any actor or writer that you met that you were in awe of when you first met the guy or the woman? Well, I've, I've met a lot of people. I've never really been in awe of anyone. You know, I got over that quickly. My dad was pals with the Pittsburgh pirate team. Uh, that was like the night you imagine like this 1960 team. Oh yeah. Yeah. My dad was used to hang out with those guys and I did too. We had to go to the games and hang out at Gustine's afterwards with, mm-hmm. with them. So I kind of got over that awe thing. Like I've been around, you know, like, like Spielberg and Michael Douglas and, Tom Cruise and there, it just, I, I think way, I have to work with these people. It's like, I have to think be way beyond that. I can be impressed with somebody's work. Like, you know, I think Spielberg is like a fucking amazing director who, you know, just keeps on chugging and, and making massive storytelling uh, statements uh, with film. Uh, you know, Wes was a good guy, and it, but nah, I don't, I don't get that awesome, you know? Even when you met Gary Marshall? No, because I met Gary Marshall uh, uh, through a friend. Okay. So I met, I met a lot of people like Danny Arnold and Norman Lear. And, you know, I met, but I met a lot of these people with Sam, these older, that older generation. You know, I, I would look at somebody with, Oh, I'll tell you a story. If we we have time for a quick story. We have plenty of time. Okay. So uh, the hard rock cafe opens up in uh, uh, Beverly Hills. And uh, uh, I don't know, sometime in the, uh, I'm going to say in the 80s, early 80s, uh, 80s. No, wait, it would have to be like late 80s. So Sam and I were driving around Beverly Center and we saw it. And uh, we said, let's go in and check it out. We parked the car and we go in and Sam looks around and uh, he sees someone at a booth, sitting, a man sitting by himself and he said, oh, there's, uh, there's Neil. So uh, we go over and uh, uh, the guy looks at Sam and goes, Sam. Sam says, Neil. And Neil says, sit down. And he says, uh, Neil, this is my partner, Mark. Mark, this is Neil Simon. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, you know, and we're all, so like 10 minutes later, we're ordering dinner and I'm sitting there and I'm having dinner with Neil Simon. And uh, he, he was in there because he had just broken up with uh, uh, Marsha Mason, or I think for the second time. And uh, he was looking for girls. He was just, uh, he was in there looking for girls. How old was he at the time? Well, this was, I'm going to say this was late eighties, whenever, whatever the, you know, I, so I, I don't know, probably in his fifties. Oh, okay. You know, late fifties, early sixties. That's 60s, funny. Right. And so when you have, when you have moments, I've had lots of those kind of moments. Right. So, so when you have enough of those, the, the veneer of who someone is professionally is perceived by the public, at least as far as you know, right, I understand. gets pierced very quickly. So before I let you go, you we were talking in the beginning that you went back to doing stand up. How were you doing stand up for years before you started writing, or simultaneously? I, well, I, I did all those shows with London Lee, like 150 shows in the Hatfields. I was a okay. small, small part of his act, and then I got to do it at the Copa. So then I was going around to clubs after I left London before Last House. I was doing comedy stand up at you know, little shitbag clubs in, in the city. And when I got out here, I, I sold the script, the first script that I ever wrote. Again, the lucky thing, right? And uh, uh, got out here. Uh, I had William Morris as an agent immediately, like the day I landed. And they asked me, you know, what else I wanted to do. And I said, well, I did stand up. So they got me into the comedy store. And I did, I did stand up there for several years until my writing career got to such a point where I had to make a decision. Okay. And quite frankly, uh, I didn't want to go on the road. I didn't want to be like a road comedian. You know, I didn't, I didn't, didn't want to do that. I wanted to have a family at some point and I didn't want to be a phone, a father who was like a voice at the other end of the phone. Right. Uh, so I, I went in the direction of writing and hadn't done stand up in 35 years since, you know, before I quit, a time I quit, and then when I went back to it. So you like doing stand-up? Oh man, I'll tell you. <laughs> it's, you know, it's like uh, it's the most fun. I used to think it was it's the most fun you can have in life with your clothes on. Okay. <laughs> and and but now at seventy-two, I think it's basically the most fun I can have in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man, it's just it's a it's a fucking trip. It's just I mean, you you watch that little clip, right? Yeah. So the whole show is like that. I did 26 minutes of I had 26 minutes of that. And it's it's I'm chasing that feeling I got when I was 10 years old. You know, Mm -hmm. it's it's like my heroine. It's like I'm chasing that dragon. Only that. How often do you perform now or do just when you feel like it? Just when I feel like it, although, uh, you know, as you can see, I shaved my beard. My beard's not as long as it was. Uh, yes, I saw that. So I got tired of waking up like with hair in my mouth and whatever. So I trimmed it. So I, I think I'm doing something in uh, late January, February. So by that time, it'll be back in. And, uh, you know, my fighting, fighting. <laughs> uh, and, and I'll be ready to don the black clothes. And, you know, my wife said to me every time she watches me get dressed to do a show. It's the closest she'll ever come to watching Bruce Wayne become Batman. 
Because <laughs> I'm such Cause... another person. You watch that character. I'm such another person than he is. Well, what, well, I and I, I, I noticed that because I'm watching this going, this isn't the same guy I talked to on the phone a few weeks ago and now talking no. to you now. Yeah, no. it's, it's a totally different persona. Now, I'm going to ask you this because, unfortunately, I won't ever, I, I, I can't say never, but won't see you perform live. Is there any type of plan of recording what you do to put it online or in some situation? Yes, I have the, sh- the show that I did uh, recently. Um, along with about six or seven other one one minute little clips, like I sent you with that typewriter yeah. thing, um, uh, um, and the entire show is being edited and tightened, and you know I have an editor working on it. And as soon as that's done and all that material is ready, then I ship it over to my social media guy that I hired recently, and uh, uh, he'll be putting it out uh, everywhere he can. And that's the other thing I wanted to ask you too, with what we're seeing right now with social media, with streaming services, do you feel that your career, um, if it would have started today, would be different than it did when you actually did start? Well, of course. I mean, I would have had different parameters. You know, I would have, I would have, uh, like everybody else, we would have, we would have had different uh, rules of engagement to play by. Right. Back in my day, you know, when people were getting started. You needed uh, management was the most important thing, even before an agent, uh, a good right. manager. And those managers like Jerry Seinfeld's manager, George Shapiro, who also managed Sam Denoff. Right. Uh, they used to hang out at the comedy store. Bernie Brillstein used to hang out at the comedy store. And Bud Robinson would hang out at the comedy store. Rick Bernstein would hang out at the comedy store or the improv. And that's where they would meet talent. Today, everything's online and on your phone and social media. And so, you know, I, I hired a guy, young guy, uh, who's a fan of, El, of the character of Elliot. And I said, uh, all right, you know, put me out there. And don't, don't say you wouldn't see Elliot live. You know, the circumstances could, could uh, bring me to Elliot. I would... I was just going to ask you if you could see him coming to Pittsburgh. Well, you know, of course. <laughs> sure. Yeah, so, absolutely. So this week, the Steelers have a four-day turnaround for a game yeah. on Thursday night. Yeah, I know. What do you think is going to happen? I don't know, man. They've been hard to – they've been hard to uh, – I'd have to ask my uncle. I have a, a 93-year-old uncle who lives in Pittsburgh. Uh, my and, father's and, brother. And, and any th- thoughts about Roethlisberger retiring? Look, you know, how long can you do that? Uh, uh, how long can you do that at the level that he's used to doing it at? There's nothing, there's nothing sadder, I think, than a once champion athlete who can't let go. And right. you know, nobody wants to see an athlete in decline. People want to see an athlete on the way up at his or her peak and then make room for somebody else. And, uh, uh, you know, and I, I know some professional athletes. I know, uh, I have a very close friend who's a one time big star on the PGA tour. And I know it was tough to, to turn 50, you know, and, and, and have to not do that. Not and have, you know, so that's a whole other world, you know, you, that, but, 
where, where you need your body. Like me, I don't, I just need my mind and my mouth. You know, I could be a head still do stand up. You know, they could bring me in a little box like Senor Wences and, you know, put the phone there. All right, it's good, it's good. All right, all right, it's good. Actually, it's good. That, should be, that should be your new gimmick. I like that. Uh, I'm still working on this gimmick. You know, I haven't, I haven't fully actuated this gimmick yet. Well, I finally figured out after all these years, I can be a ventriloquist by wearing a mask. So there you go. Right. Yep, I finally figured out my next career. Well, Mark, thank you very much. This was a pleasure. Oh, you, and I, I wish you the best of luck on those seven years because I want my cameo appearance. So good I, luck I, to you on that. Consider this a, a verbal contract between you and me at scale, of course. Uh, uh, heck, I'd do it for free. I probably shouldn't no, say no, no, that. No, no, but... no. Can't have that. Can't have that. But if I get that show made, somebody makes that show and I do it in Pittsburgh, I'll put you in some place. That sounds great. Mark, thank you very much. Good luck with you on the stand-up and everything else you're doing. Really appreciate it. Thank you again. You take care, man. A big thank you goes out to Mark Scheffler for joining us here on One on One with Bill Alexander. Had a great time talking to him about his childhood growing up in the city of Pittsburgh. We also talked to him about his stand-up career and also his script writing career for TV programs. And wishing him the best of luck on his new project called Those Seven Years, which are about those seven years of his life where he made a decision that he was going to be on the screen at the Stanley Theater, and he was in the movie The Last House on the Left. Well, that's going to wrap it up for yours truly, Bill Alexander. We'll talk to you next time here on One on One with Bill Alexander. Thank you for listening to One on One with Bill Alexander. One on One with Bill Alexander is a million-dollar baby production. For more information, go to BillAlexander.net. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. 